Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Hello, Rio Ferdinand, OBE. I am thrilled that you've joined me on the podcast. And as the captain of England, you've had 81 caps and one of the most decorated footballers of all time you probably wouldn't be expecting to come on a Therapy Works podcast (laughs) because all the podcasts I've heard you on are about football, but the things I'm thinking about with you are more to do with your documentary, Being Mum and Dad, and your wonderful book, Thinking Out Loud, and your private life. And so I guess my first question is, what is a particular challenge you're facing you've had to overcome given all of your footballing success? I think, obviously, if anyone knows my story, I've, I've had some tragedy in recent years in my life of losing first my wife and then my mum in quick succession with three young kids to help get through that. And I think, obviously, those things are huge as well. But if I'm talking about it here and now, it's kind of helping navigate my five children through that huge loss and the impact that has in many different ways on those five different children that I now have. Why I particularly applaud you is that often men don't talk about their emotions. Certainly footballers don't talk about their emotions. And from what I understood in the documentary, you as your family didn't talk about emotions, particularly with your dad on your dad's side, much more with your mum. And it feels like part of how you've learned to navigate it and is still a challenge is both how you keep going and also allow yourself to experience the emotions that you have to feel the sadness or the anger or the loss because Mm. one of the messages i get from you which i think is a very accurate one that we don't get over grief grief is lifelong and yet we can still have joy and love and more kids but it's complicated yeah it is And, and what happens as well because a lot of people, especially with social media now, they see you and they see most people at their best on social media. A lot of people think that 
yes, you've been through tragedy and there's loss, etc. And then everybody at the beginning goes, oh, go on, get a, we want you to get a new life. We want you to enjoy yourself and have a new family, new beginning, etc. And then quickly that turns into a feeling of, oh, you forgot them. You must have forgot. You don't care. You never cared about that. And I'm, I'm allowed to have my life. I'm allowed to move forward. I'm allowed to be happy. I'm allowed to say and show how happy I am now. That doesn't mean that what's gone on beforehand didn't have a huge impact in your life and that you've totally forgotten that or anything like that. It's just that where you are now, you have to look forward. And yes, you do look back into the past and you do have touch points and you do have those visits, especially with your children, because they need that more than anybody. But you have to be able to move forward and, 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 and enjoy yourself and show that love can come round again and and for many and for a lot of people it does and i'm one of the fortunate ones as i was listening to you i was thinking the kind of cultural assumptions about grief are exactly like that you end a chapter you move on to a new chapter and there's a new you that moves forward mm. and i think what i really understand is that your past is very much in your present and mm. both your past as a footballer, but also your past as the husband to Rebecca, the son of your beloved mum. And when you were saying the touch points with the children, what are the particular times and how do they come out when you have to revisit them? I think most of the time it will be around food, around dinner at a dinner table. Our, is our house is very, yeah, our house is very animated and lively. You can imagine there are five children flying about. Yeah, and Kate as well. So it's very loud and loads of opinions, but that's where <laughs> you hear about certain memories. And, and you know, a lot of stuff comes around in jovial times. Like, what about, remember when we used to do that? And you and mummy would see us doing this. We might even be talking about discipline and their mum comes into it because she disciplined them in a certain and they forget. And like, if me and Kate are carrying out certain things discipline-wise in the house, like, listen, don't forget, your mum was probably worse. There's a lot of that. And then obviously there's sometimes that the kids might have moments where they need that little bit of a soft approach and just going over old things and memories and stuff and just to reassure them about certain aspects um, of their childhood as well. Because as I said, my kids were very young when they lost their mum. So the youngest one, especially Tia, doesn't have great memories. So it's about trying to keep giving her those as well and revive her items of clothing or pictures of videos or just memories is, is vitally important and it's a bit different for the boys because they, they remember their mum really well because they had longer time with her so it's not as, as hard and I think to be honest with you when you get into a new relationship as well I've got Kate now and she probably has to talk and, and do stuff around the kid's mum more than me because as a woman and because the great job she's done naturally they're going to go to that softer person and they go to her a lot especially Tia so when she's feeling emotional or she's not feeling her best sometimes she'll go to Kate and talk about things and that's why Kate asked me so many questions about their mum it's such a weird ex experience you've got your current wife is asking a lot of questions about your ex-wife so she can gain more knowledge and information to be able to then expose the young kids to it's an unbelievable trait for her to have that and that to have that empathy and that understanding and i don't know you've got to be a strong woman to do that because the natural instincts of a human being isn't to want to know about the ex-partner of your current partner do you know what i mean to do that and to 
fill herself with as much knowledge as she can. We were talking about this the other day. We talk about it loads. It's, it is a weird thing, but it's something that she loves doing because she knows a kid's benefit. I am really moved by hearing that, how she, who she never met Rebecca, has had to mm. learn to love her in a way and learn what she was like and who she was so that she can parent your kids whilst loving their mum. And for you, when you said it's weird, what is weird about it? Is it because your instinct is to shut down and move on as well? It's weird because, in a way, when you look at it, it's great. And I, I, like, I commend her and I, like, I mm. thank her crazily for it because it's a phenomenal trait to have. But it's almost like you've got to put yourself to the side and embrace your current partner's ex-wife. In a normal world, that doesn't happen. You don't talk about <laughs> your current partner's ex. You don't no. ask loads of questions. And you're not interested in them. You don't want to know about them. So it's such a shift in the mindset of how we're brought up to, to deal with somebody's ex-partner. But it's for the right reasons, obviously. It is a shift in the mindset. And I actually, I think what's really important is recognising that we have the capacity to love more than one person at the same time. That you can love Rebecca and you can love Kate. And I think we have this very kind of black and white view that once one relationship is ended, another one comes and you have to forget and move on. But what you're recognizing is that your relationship with Rebecca continues and your kid's relationship with Rebecca continues. And Kate facilitates that by being the kind of bridge in some ways. The bridge, yeah. And I think it's more about the relationship with Rebecca will continue, especially through the children, because it's so important. I had my time with Rebecca with their mum, but the children is taken away from them. They don't get their memories. So it's, it's so important for me to keep that light burning for the children. So at any point that they come to me or to Kate, we have the ability to brighten that light of their mum for them so that they can still see her and they can feel her and they can smell her and they can feel that they're almost in touching distance a little bit. I, I'm not saying I'm great at it or I'm perfect. I think Kate, it's weird, Kate has to remind me sometimes, listen, you, you, maybe you need to go and speak to Tia or to Lorenzo Tate or whatever about their mum or about this or that. It's, it's weird. It's just because life gets in the way sometimes. You've got to juggle so much and I'm just lucky that I have someone who's very aware and who's very conscious of the fact that Rebecca still has a huge importance in our house. And I imagine for you, there are times when you're juggling and missing Rebecca or seeing the children upset and being distressed and working and doing all the stuff that you really miss your mum. It's like you really need your mum. And I wonder if you feel like she had to be sidelined to meet the needs of your children to get on with life. Yeah, my mum's, it's a river because she became the children's mum, effectively. As soon as their mum passed away, she was to go to, she was in their life every day, whether it's school pickups and being at home, cooking dinner with us and whatnot, putting them to bed and stuff. She was there the whole time. It was almost in a strange way that the kids lost two mums in, in the short space of time, within 18 months, two years. So yeah, it, is, it, it was a crazy one, but I quite, again, quite fortunate in a roundabout way that Kate actually met my mum. I think it was two years, about two years, two and a half years, maybe. Anyway, but in that period at the end, just before my mum passed away, she actually met my mum a couple of times and my mum gave us some really good advice. And my mum was very good and intuitive of people and 
she's given Kate a few bits of advice that have stood firm with her throughout, even up to now. In relation to your mum, I was wondering, did you learn, because when Rebecca was dying, you didn't talk about her dying to her. And I was wondering if that changed when your mum got ill, whether you were able to face it while she was Mm. alive or not. Yeah, it was still a a really massive blur. Like I've got really big blank spots around the weeks of my mum passing still. And Kate sometimes has to remind me about certain things when we're talking about it. And I go, oh, God, I completely forgot all about that. But yeah, more in terms of what my mum would want, talking to her about that. Like when my mum was very much about, listen, when this happens, I want you to be aware that I would like this and I want this to happen and can you do this for me? And just talking to her a little bit more about materialistic things was a huge thing because I think that can get very complicated when there's a lot of family involved. But as much as that, the emotional side of things and just, yeah, telling your mum that you love her and talking about old memories a little bit up until the last stages, I think is really important. I didn't do that first time round with Rebecca, but I, I, I tried to do it as much as I could. And I could have done more, I'm sure. But I've done as much as for me at the time was possible. I feel so moved by you, Ray, because it's like you let yourself learn. It's almost like you had one mindset when you were a professional footballer where everything was about mm. football and you zoned in to that. And, you know, you could probably replay for me any kick that you did or any goal that you scored or missed for all the times you were a professional footballer. And it feels like you've taken that mindset and turned it with a light towards your life and your kids so that you're learning, that you've gone on learning and changing, and it isn't your natural default mode. For instance, Mm. 50% of men are as half as likely to go to therapy as women. Men, footballers, I think professional athletes, very rarely talk about their emotions. Mm. So I'm wondering, I don't know, I'm impressed, but also curious about how you have shifted your mindset. I think firstly, my children were the drivers. When their mum passed away, I was just sitting there going, how am I going to help them? Like, I don't know how to help them. I don't talk to nobody. I don't really want to go, like people were mentioning therapy and I was a little bit like, and it was weird. Uh, uh, the idea of the TV programme, it hit the nail on the head really, because I was, it was probably layers to it. I was going to help my children and the pressure of a TV program puts pressure on me to actually go through the process of like therapy opening up speaking to people who have experienced this that can then give me so much more that i can then give to my children there's so many factors that men actually this is a a perfect storm really in terms of the doing the shows because i mean in the end the most important thing to me is my kids and this gives me the best opportunity to help my kids but it forces me to go into places that I would never normally go into. You feel very different now to to mm. the you then? Because to you then, it felt like this was a language. It was a bit like you looked at the dishwasher and you said, I know what you do, but I don't know how to use you. And it was a mm. bit like you looked at therapy and it's like, well, maybe you're useful, but what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it feels like you've come quite a long way from... Yeah, and I, I just think that, that you have to experience stuff. I just like, as a footballer, I was very much like that, and I was laser focused on on being the best I can be and 
training a certain way and just being very regimented and I never deviated outside of that pathway that I'd created for myself and set up. And the crazy thing is none of us are taught about death, but it's probably one of the only absolutes in our lives. We're yeah. all going to die. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But we're never taught about it. And we're all going to be bereaved. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I don't understand why the curriculum doesn't involve that in a much deeper way. So it actually prepares people properly for death because everything's a fairy tale in life and up until you get to being a man or a woman and living life in reality. But in the formative years, everything's a fairy tale and we don't talk about death. We don't talk about losing people and, and stuff like that where it's a given. Having the experience of, of Rebecca then, obviously my mum, that came around after and I was a lot more prepared for that. But then there's other problems that then arise. It's like bringing someone new into your family. You you find someone else that you love and that brings a whole new wave of different emotions and opinions and relationship breaking and stuff like that. I completely agree with you that grief should be part of our formal education. And actually, I'd love to ask you after this is what you think should be taught. But also this idea that there's constantly a, a remapping that needs to be done. You have to understand and accept that you are going to change and do not feel guilty for changing because you have to evolve. You have to become different because you're a different person without that person you've lost. It's a fact. That's just normal. And you, you evolve and you become different in certain ways and hopefully for the better. But also what's important is the people around you have to understand and accept that you are going to be different. And I think that's been a difficult thing in our life with surrounding relationships around us and within our network is some people find it difficult to understand that you are going to change and that is actually acceptable. It's not only acceptable, but it's vital. If you don't change, then you become stuck. And that is really mm. bad for your mental health and for your children's outcome. I have heard so many times how bringing a new person into your relationship and then changing as a result, because you influence and inform each other, but the people around you are not adapting and they have very strong opinions and they want mm. you to do it this way or that way, then it feels like another loss in a way, because... You need the people in your network and your village to support you. But if they're constantly having opinions that don't match yours, it's very complicated. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely made me a harder person emotionally as well. And you have to become selfish. I was very, very kind of more giving and more selfless person before. Not that I'm not, I'm over selfish, but I'm selfish towards my own family now. And my own family come before anybody or anything else. Whereas before I was very much about being open for other people and in in terms of giving myself. And I think that you see a lot about people as well in, with trauma and with, with, when losing people. You see a lot about your so-called friends or family and who really is there for you for the right reasons and who are willing to sacrifice some of their emo own emotions for the betterment of your household. Because it's hard for everybody, and I do accept that, and I understand it's very hard for everybody within the network of the person who's passed away. It's difficult. But there has to be some understanding of vital elements going forward after that person's left that have to be accepted, understood, and encouraged. And if that doesn't happen, then it can really have a huge negative impact on that household that's been left by that person that's gone.
Yeah, I can really understand that. And it's the quality of your relationship is tested. Do they love you enough mm -hmm. to let you be yourself? Yeah. Or are they insistent? Selfish, yeah, selfish. okay. Mm. <laughs> That's a direct way of saying it. And that you in some ways have to be ruthless in prioritizing your family setup. I mean, you don't want to exclude them, but sometimes relationships change, don't know. There's some people you have to let go. And I guess some people were better than you expected or you got closer to. Mm. Yeah, definitely. My dad is a prime example. I think you see in the second documentary, my dad was very difficult at the start. He was. But if, if there was going to say one person that if something happened to me now, I know that person will stand up and be there and take care of my family, my dad would be the first person without a heartbeat because he's understanding, he's caring. Yes, he was difficult at the beginning, but it was for the, from the right place. But he quickly understood. And now he wouldn't flinch if there was a problem or an issue on my side. That's amazing. So in some ways, you've got closer since mm. Rebecca died. And in yeah, some way, the documentaries force you to focus on your relationship in a way that maybe you wouldn't have done if you'd been on your own. Yeah, well, 100%. And, and the most pleasing thing is, is my kids. They're all massively close to my dad. Yesterday, even my son was talking about it, like how close they are. It's not, my granddad's just not my granddad. He's like a close friend. You can't ask for much, not much better than that. Do you know what I mean? So, and it's unfortunate that you end up losing some people along the way. But that's not because I wanted to lose people. They've put me in a position to have to make that choice, which is a shame. Yeah, it wasn't a choice you wanted to make. Mm. I do think that often grandparents, the value of grandparents for loving their grandchildren and having a different relationship than a parent with their children is often unrecognized, that how liberating it can be because they don't have to hold the rules and be strict and get them to school, but they can be people who can be a friend, like Lorenz was saying, that they can mm. be a really reliable source of love that is more meaningful than we give it credit for. Yeah, and they can confide in them. Yes. They can confide, they can speak openly, knowing that they have a trust with that grandparent, that they have got some stuff that will be exclusive to their relationship. And that's, that's vital, when, especially that my kids have been through what they've been through. And to have that bit of trust outside of our house so they can lean on somebody else, I think that hugely important for us but it's also there's another dynamic in our house we've got two new babies yes that, part of, that make the kids of the family of seven now and it's like we're already talking about how do we navigate that topic of conversation around rebecca with the the two new additions and make them understand and no so they, so they feel a part of it and they're all brothers and sisters, but there's obviously stuff that's gone on over here that they're going to have to be made very aware of. So it's just a, that's another something to add to it. What are you thinking so far? Where's your thinking got you to? Me and Kate have been talking about it here and there. And he already speaks about Rebecca. He says, you see her picture, he'll say her name because her picture's up in certain places in the house. So it's making him aware of the name and stuff. And then in time, when he's a bit more older and he can understand more, then... It's more going to be that we're going to ref we're going to react to his questions, and just making sure that we're both aligned when that time comes in a couple of years. That is so sensitive of you. I mean, one of the things 
that you were really navigating your way out of, which I see is often a problem, is that when new kids come into the family, the children who aren't the mother's children feel second-class citizens. They feel like mm. somehow they are less than than the <laughs> kids born to the mother, which I'm sure yeah. you can understand. And yeah. it feels to me like you're doing everything you can to sensitively give each child a place to know that they're loved and secure mm. and valued, whoever their parent is. This is this has been a mad topic. I'm crazy to say this has been a real kind of hot topic in our house between me and Kate. You know, you have that like a, a debrief at the end of every day just before you go to bed as, as a couple. One of them conversations has been around externally people going, oh, Kate, Kate, you've got two kids, two kids now, unbelievable. And Kate doesn't know how to control her anger, <laughs> emotions around that type of comment. And I say, listen, I think sometimes people just, they know you've got five kids, but then you've got two newborns. And I give them the benefit of the doubt in some way. But if the kids are in earshot and they hear that, that is out of order. There's five kids. Uh, they might not be biologically mine, but they're treated exactly the way I would treat the two that I've got that are biologically mine. So I would like that to be understood and, and valued when you're talking about our family or our kids. But it's just that it's hard, isn't it? And someone said something the other day and Kate's face was like, she just sat there blank and the person <laughs> could quickly correct themselves. Because I just think it wasn't being rude. It just was just uh, an honest mistake that she had made, but she quickly corrected herself based on Kate's reaction. So it's difficult. I think it's difficult for everyone talking about it, but also us here on the receiving end of the comment, it's quite difficult. It is difficult, but I love her fierceness. And it yeah, looks like so you I. like it too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am not going to allow that. These are all of my kids and I love them all the same, whether they're biologically mm. my kids or not. And I can mm. see that as the dad to all of these kids, that generosity must really be the thing that has supported you most in your going forward, that you love someone who loves you and loves your kids. Yeah, and that's, that was one of the most important things at the beginning. When you come across somebody who fits the bill of maybe being a potential partner for life, in my situation, I'm thinking massively, yes, I'm infatuated with this woman, but at the same time, a huge driver in whether I stay with her or whether I not will be if my kids can be on the same page with her. Will she invest in my children? Like, if we're talking in football terms, I couldn't have made a better pick. I couldn't have, <laughs> I couldn't have gone and recruited somebody any better than what I've got. I've got an unbelievable woman in terms. Yeah, so I've got an unbelievable woman who, like I say, has put herself firmly at the back of the pack and made sure that, that the kids in our household have been the centre of her attention. And she sacrificed in terms of her own dignity at times, her own feelings, to make sure that the kids are always the number one at the forefront of her mind. So it's, it's been, and making sure that the, the, the kids, yes, there's newborn kids, but you're not going to feel any different and you're not going to be treated any different. And I think that's a huge thing. So yeah. In the transfer window, I made a great, a great recruit. You did make a great recruit. And in thinking from it, from a football, public, private aspect, the other thing I was thinking about you is you seem to have navigated having a very public phase and a private phase and how you manage the movement between the two when you are oh, yeah. quite open. I've never really let the kids be public, but 
And I think that's the right reason we still think that. But it's it's finding the right balance. I never was really putting my private life out in the public domain. But when I had the opportunity through the documentary and through the book and stuff, it's the ability to help a lot of other people. First, my kids, but then help other people. And I thought that was just a, a compelling reason for me to get involved and open myself up. And I think that you look in today's society, like you said at the, the top of the podcast, is that most men don't even entertain the idea of therapy. Most men don't even talk about their feelings or emotions, let alone shedding a tear. And I let myself go to them points and go to those areas and how it alleviated pressure, stress, anxiety off my shoulders and made me feel a lot lighter through all of those different things and approaching all of those different areas. I had to let people know that, listen, this ain't a bad thing. It's like people tell you, don't take painkillers because they're not good for you long term. They're not, but they're going to make you feel better. So you go with it. And actually, long term, you're going to be okay. Do you know what I mean? It's just, you just got to go with it. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but it is. I think you just, you should just go and these things will immediately make you feel better short term, but long term, you feel better again. I obviously, as a therapist, really applaud what you're saying, but it's from your experience. So, your experience mm. is that, of course, you want to turn away from pain and it's counterintuitive to let yourself feel it and express it and be open about it. But actually what you're saying is that by expressing it and letting yourself go there in the way that you did with your tears and your anger and being open with me now, you actually feel lighter and better, whereas you think going through it will make you feel worse. Yeah, and, and the, the thing is, is it's not necessarily about you, but it, it, that advert on TV or someone mentioned something that it, it seems like it's about your situation, that's going to happen so much in your life that if you don't approach it and address it, you're never going to be able to deal with those scenarios and then situations, and you're always going to feel tense and uptight and oh, like upset uh. and emotional. So if you open yourself to speaking about these things, it's going to be in your life anyway, and you can navigate yourself through it so much easier and um, without kind of that pain and anger and angst that comes with these situations if you don't approach it right. Yeah, because it's protective. So if you've if you're approaching it by being honest and authentic, when a difficult situation occurs and comes through you, you've been there already and you mm. haven't battened down the hatches and felt that you're going to be attacked because you've already opened mm. enough. Mm. If you don't go to therapy or you don't talk to people or you don't even acknowledge that this has happened and embrace being a bit open about it and having conversations with people that have had experiences of this or etc you end up walking about not literally but you are walking around like this basically walking around with your hands over your head yeah hoping that no one speaks and you're wincing at the fact that if anybody mentions death or bereavement or loss or do you know what i mean or, or somebody else having a partner or somebody else having a full family that you once had like everywhere you go you see something that will just trigger you back to that bad place if you don't open yourself up and who wants to walk around with their hands over their head frightened to hear or see or feel something that might just trigger memories or emotions of their past to people listening to your podcast whether it's men or women is your message the things that you can face and allow yourself to feel are the things in the end that you can live with and engage with life. But the things that you block and put your hands over your head for fear of being upset is in the end the things that do you harm. 
exactly that. I couldn't have put it any better myself. You don't approach these things, you're never, ever going to get rid of the pain. No one's saying that the pain goes forever, but it softens the pain. No one's saying for you to forget everything and delete everything. No. You're just saying that it will, it can be compartmentalized a little bit and it's there. And when it's approached and when it's mentioned and when you're triggered by it, there's no negativity. So you embrace that memory. It's a smile. It's not a, it's not a frown. It's not always a tear. But crying is fine. And I think that I was one of the most kind of stoic kind of, not macho, but I was in a changing room full of 25 guys who all wanted to be the most macho in that room. And so showing emotion, showing fear, showing vulnerability, showing tears was an absolute no-no. And for me to have been able to step out of that and to soften up, so to speak, and to embrace all these emotions and these different roots to to finding the better part of myself and being able to deal with these emotions i just thought if i could be that kind of guy at the moment because i didn't see those examples around then i'm going to be helping a lot of people so if i can do it guys listen it's, it's possible for everybody to do it that's such an inspirational image to um, end on, Rio. This idea of all these 25 guys being macho in the changing room. And then you've <laughs> stepped out of there and inhabited all of yourself, not just the macho guy. You've still got the macho guy, but you've got these different versions of yourself that can cry and can laugh and can love and can play and be silly and work in a way that mm. were not available to you before when you were just like this football machine. Thank you, you very much. You put it much. well, I like that. Did you like that? Good. Uh, thanks. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Rio. No, thank you very much, guys. I've enjoyed that. Really nice. Yeah, nice I... way to start the day. Good way to start the day. Thank mm. you. Thanks a lot. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. Oh my goodness, did I take a long time to get started or not? I was just like, listening, I was like, putting my hands on my face like oh for god's sake woman shut up just wait for let him talk i didn't notice that and no, nor did i <laughs> anyway <laughs> having said that got it out of the way what did you take from it that is sort of generalized i mean it was a lot it felt such a lovely and and in fact really useful conversation for lots of people to hear i mean it, it did remind me of our episode with kate in the sense of just the power of love to transform and there, her, his love for Rebecca, his love for his children, his love for Kate, and Kate's love for all of them. Yeah, I agree. I wrote that down, that the love and he and Kate have for each other, and their different ways of describing each other. I know we're not sort of talking specifics about the interview, but I think it just, you can't really sort of not notice it, like how they speak about each other and how healing their love for each other has been. It's a very beautiful thing to hear. Yeah, it leaves you with you know, love can be used as weapons, like there isn't enough. So this is for other people with step families or, you know, blended families where a, a parent has died. There can be this jealousy of the of the idealized person that's no longer present 
and that the new person coming in, you know, I've heard so many times in my work where all the clothes are put away and there's no photographs, there's no stories, because somehow the memory and the love for them threatens this new love and they need to push them away. And I was thinking when love is generative in the way that they have it, it actually creates more love, doesn't it? Because the generosity of it expands and they all grow with it. Mm. I found it quite moving hearing about, you know, particularly how he talked about Kate, you know, being so fierce about her loving all, all the children and then being her children, partly because it reminds me of my father-in-law who very much did the same and fought for all of the children he became stepfather and father to. And in terms of generating more love, yeah. now that, you know, his wife died last year, all that love is coming back to him. You know, there's a grandchild living with him. Every few days he goes and stays with another child. His kind of generosity and love that he kind of entered into those relationships with now kind of comes back to him in his old age, yeah. older age. Um, so lovely, saves. And it is an old cliche, you reap what you sow, but he sowed good seeds that he can really get back now. I think that sometimes it can sound so tidy and neat, like, oh, just be loving. <laughs> just mm. just love and, you know, you'll get love back. Or like with Rio, you know, be open to feelings, talk about stuff. It looks very sort of neat and simple and easy. What I also really understood from what he was saying is that even when you are trying your best to learn and change and do all the right things and love and be loving, it's messy. It's, yeah. it's not going to be neat. And I think I really also wanted to, to our listeners, what I think Rio was speaking to as well, is, is that it's going to be hard and messy and there are going to be times where you definitely really feel like, oh, I think I'm not getting this right. <laughs> and that's kind of part of the process as well. I think Blended, which is Kate Rio's wife's podcast and a really interesting Instagram feed as well. I think it's also like a community for people facing these very messy situations and doing the best they can. So I direct people there as well because it's full of all sorts of useful advice and just also a community of people doing things that are not easy. So I think one of the things, I, the ways I think about that messiness is sometimes when you need to hold on to something, you know, the kind of life raft of yeah. when it feels really messy and is that mm. is intention rather than the idea of getting it perfect each and in the interaction. And that I think we feel the other person's intention, maybe not in that moment, but over the longer span of the relationship, when the intention is to get it right, when the intention is, to love mixed in with like being furious and angry or messy or that is I think often a helpful thing to hold on to rather than the idea that you need to get it perfect yes and I think you're right I'm not sure that the intention is always meaningful in the moment particularly if you have like a sort of angry teenager exactly. I don't think in the moment they're going like, to care they about will your intention, intention. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think you're right it's definitely part of my experience of becoming an adult and you know I think a big part of that is having compassion for your parents doing the best that they 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 could under you know the circumstances of their experiences and as a child or as a teenager you don't recognize that really and that's right because that's not your job but but I think you're right I think it does help inform how someone kind of 
maybe looks back on it. The other thing I was interested in um, and taking it to a sort of general perspective is how the people around us, you know, the village, really want the best for us. And people around us have opinions and viewpoints and kind of feel right. And how hard it is to kind of hold a boundary between what is right for us, me and my kids, my partner, my new configuration, and still allow other people's opinions. And sometimes it does require us to kind of step back a bit and hold a boundary and not include them. But I was wanting to ask you, can you think of ways that we can do that, that somehow holds the relationship with enough connection that doesn't end a relationship? I think it's such a complicated thing to navigate. Uh, This is something that comes up a lot for me in um, my work. Because I often have parents who are trying to do something different with their children and give their children a different experience. And sometimes that means parenting in a way that clashes with the family system. And so they often have these sort of occasions that often happens like around Christmas or meals or where like you have big family get togethers. And sometimes people have a child who has difficulty regulating or whatever the difficulty is and the parents have decided we are not going to do what our parents did we are not going to shout we are not going to take them outside and discipline in this way we're going to do our own version of discipline whatever that is and yet when they're in that scenario and they feel these like eyes of judgment from parents or siblings and I know I felt it myself with my own children in, in a public place where you sort of feel like you should be doing something, but you kind of want to do something. You. You want to do or, you. Yeah, that you, <laughs> you want to do you. And yet you're also like, you feel kind of ashamed that your kid is the one that, that's not sitting at the table or that's eating not their sitting food. sitting on the table and, right, exactly, all those rules that you sort of maybe are doing differently. And I think it is really hard to hold on to your own sense of what is right when you feel eyes of judgment from people that you love. And I think for me, it's about balance. Like if you decide to do something different in that particular situation, I don't think it's going to have a sort of huge long-term impact. But also for me, it's about kind of having a mantra in your head that you can say to yourself about why you are doing the things that you are doing. And I said to myself, and I have not necessarily kept this (laughs) but I have said to myself from when my son was very very tiny I am not going to apologize for him existing oh wow for for being who he is and of course if he like thumps another child in the playground or, or like I will apologize for his behavior but I never I have this sort of very strong feeling of like I don't want to apologize for him being a child and being learning about things and there's something about that that for me in those situations where I feel like oh like probably people are thinking that I should do this or should do that that's kind of what I hold on to I hold on to him essentially Um, so I think that was maybe a tangent no no, it's beautiful my only other thought on that one is I think one of the things that often stops people making change in fact is because they know that other people won't like it whether that is changing your identity, your sexual identity, or 
way that you parent, how you express yourself, whether you speak up, don't speak up, you know, those sorts of things. I think sometimes visualizing yourself in a node, in a system, your family system, like Emily described, and that when you move, everybody else kind of gets impacted. You know, there's this ripple effect on everyone else who are in the system. And people will basically don't like change, as you would say, mum. Yeah, Um, and that change is threatening, change is loss, change is uncomfortable, and they didn't choose it. You're the one who's making change. And there'll be a kickback often. But I think if you can hold some sense for yourself that this isn't because you're doing something wrong or even that they're wrong, it's just this is a difficult process and there might be loss for them or they might feel threatened by the choices you're making, which doesn't make what you're doing any less important or that you shouldn't do it, but it might help the compassionate uh, relationship sustain the kind of wobbles of when change is happening to understand that when you make change, it does impact other people. Mm. And that if you can hold that in mind, you may be less angry with them or less resentful of the resistance that they're putting up to the changes you want to make without sacrificing your own needs along the way. Mm. That that kind of, that conceptualization of it. That's really useful. I've got one more thought, which is for siblings of when a parent has died, I think it often isn't recognised that there can be a lot of sibling rivalry of who had the longest and most time with the parent when they were alive. There's different types of grief yeah. that I think depend on the age you are if you, mm. when you have a parent or a sibling die. And I think the grief of a younger child is often the grief of, I didn't get to have the memories. Yeah. And yet I think the assumption often is that if your parent dies when you were really young, that somehow you should be more okay because you don't remember them. You've got nothing to miss. Yeah, but actually you didn't get anything Mm. to miss. But obviously if you're older when you have a parent die, you miss maybe viscerally in the moment. I don't think that's always true, but I think it can be true because you have more sort of cognitive understanding of what's happening. And I think that this concept of a hierarchy of grief doesn't make sense. Yeah. It does make it complicated. It's not worse or better. It's complex or less complex. That's it. That's a kind of more, it's a more useful lens, I think, to look at. And, and I think also for children to know that whatever you feel, it's valid. Like whatever your grief is, it's, it's equally valid. My only thought was if, if there are any men listening, it's just the power of destigmatizing therapy by talking about it, I think. You know, I mean, you quoted that statistic of fifty men are fifty percent less likely to seek therapy. And just today, I was with a client who, uh, who was a man, and he, his neighbour, talked to him about going to therapy and what it meant to him. And so, my client was like, "Oh, well, maybe I'll give it a go." And then this weekend, he went and met up with his home friends he hadn't seen for a long time and told them all about going to therapy. And it's just you can really be a ripple effect in that way. That yeah. it's a real thing. And it doesn't mean you have to, if you feel ashamed, but if it occurs to you to mention it to someone you feel safe to, I think it can, you know, you can have these unknown butterfly effects in these spaces. That's such a beautiful way of saying it, Sophie. Yes, one small thing can have a big long-term effect. I think there is a generational shift. Definitely. I know lots and lots of men who have been to therapy, in therapy, 
Thank you so much, Sophie M. And a particular thank you to Rio Ferdinand for being so open and insightful and funny and honest. I think it was a really powerful conversation. So if those of you listening think it's one that a friend or a family member or anybody would find useful, do please share it and do rate and subscribe the pod because it helps us be found. And we will be in your ears, I hope, next week. Thanks very much. <laughs>